Welcome to Quantum Magazine's Science Podcast. Come for the science, stay for the stories. For news, interviews, videos, graphics, and more, visit quantummagazine.org. This week on the podcast, complex natural systems defy standard mathematical analysis, so one ecologist is throwing out the equations. Then stick around or skip ahead for our second segment. The world's most dangerous malaria parasite shuffles its genes to avoid the immune system. But a new approach has begun to reveal how that process works. First, A Twisted Path to Equation-Free Prediction by Gabriel Popkin Sometimes, ecological data just don't make sense. The sockeye salmon that spawn in British Columbia's Fraser River offer a prime example. Scientists have tracked the fishery there since 1948 through numerous upswings and downswings. At first, population numbers seemed inversely correlated with ocean temperatures. The northern Pacific Ocean surface warms and then cools again every few decades. And in the early years of tracking, fish numbers seemed to rise when sea surface temperature fell. To biologists, this seemed reasonable, since salmon thrive in cold waters. Represented as an equation, the population-temperature relationship also gave fishery managers a basis for setting catch limits, so the salmon population did not crash. But in the mid-1970s, something strange happened. Ocean temperatures and fish numbers went out of sync. The tight correlation that scientists thought they had found between the two variables now seemed illusory, and the salmon population appeared to fluctuate randomly. Trying to manage a major fishery with such a primitive understanding of its biology seems like folly to George Sugihara, an ecologist at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography in San Diego. But he and his colleagues now think they have solved the mystery of the Fraser River salmon. Their crucial insight? Throw out the equations. Sugihara's team has developed an approach based on chaos theory that they call empirical dynamic modeling, which makes no assumptions about salmon biology and uses only raw data as input. In designing it, the scientists found that sea surface temperature can in fact help predict population fluctuations even though the two are not correlated in a simple way. Empirical dynamic modeling, Sugihara said, can reveal hidden causal relationships that lurk in the complex systems that abound in nature. Sugihara and his colleagues are now putting their insight to use. Earlier this year, they reported in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that their method predicted the 2014 Fraser River salmon run more precisely than any other method. Sugihara's technique predicted a run of between 4.5 million and 9.1 million fish, while the Pacific Salmon Commission's models predicted anywhere from 6.9 million to 20 million fish, a forecast so broad as to be of little benefit to, for instance, a fisher wanting to know how many boats to deploy in the coming season. The final count was around 8.8 million. This success built on an earlier result Sugihara and his colleagues had achieved with Pacific sardines, and they're working with scientists at the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, to apply the methods to Gulf and Atlantic Menhaden. Leading ecologists hope Sugihara's methods can provide the field with some much-needed predictive power, and not just for marine fisheries, but for many other ecosystems. 
Don DeAngelis, an ecologist with the U.S. Geological Survey in Miami, calls it a huge theoretical breakthrough. Sugihara and others are now starting to apply his methods not just in ecology, but in finance, neuroscience, and even genetics. These fields all involve complex, constantly changing phenomena that are difficult or impossible to predict using the equation-based models that have dominated science for the past 300 years. For such systems, DeAngelis said, empirical dynamic modeling may very well be the future. The roots of empirical dynamic modeling go back more than 30 years. In the late 1970s, the Dutch mathematician Floris Tawkins was studying chaos theory, which had begun to emerge in the 1960s, as scientists recognized that many of nature's complex phenomena seemed to defy prediction. In chaotic systems, small perturbations can have large and seemingly unpredictable effects, as in the archetypical example of a butterfly's flapping wings influencing the weather thousands of miles away. Tawkins helped find order in the chaos. Along with the physicist David Ruel, he developed the notion of a strange attractor, a set of points in a coordinate system made of the variables that influence a system around which the system's state, plotted over time, swirls like a ball of yarn. In many natural systems, however, the number of relevant variables that make up the coordinate system is immense. The factors that determine the weather in a certain place at a certain time are almost limitless, and some of these can be very hard to measure. The air pressure three miles above the North Pole, for example. But let's say you could consistently and accurately measure one variable, such as the temperature in New York City. Tawkins found a way to use present and past measurements of that one variable to capture all the information in the system. The method involves creating an alternate coordinate system from those past measurements. In other words, one coordinate axis might be the temperature in Times Square today, a second axis might be the temperature yesterday, a third the temperature two days ago, and so on. Tawkin showed that the full state of a chaotic system can, in theory at least, be embedded in a time series of a single variable. He published his embedding theorem in 1981. The theorem caused a big hullabaloo, said Timothy Sauer, a mathematician at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia, who has extended the original theorem so it can be applied more generally. The next step was for people to use it in the real world, but the messiness of nature had a way of impinging on the purity of Tawkins' math. Despite the fact that weather provided much of the initial impetus for chaos theory, it rebuffed efforts at prediction because too many constantly changing factors are involved, and no one variable can truly capture them all. Sauer said that Tawkins' theorem can be most effectively applied to systems in which the number of influencing factors is relatively small. Sugihara learned about Tawkins' theorem as a Princeton graduate student working with Robert May, a physicist by training who switched to ecology in the early 1970s. May specialized in simple and elegant theoretical studies, including one proving that the population of even a single species could fluctuate chaotically. Sugihara became interested in seeing if he could build on May's advances using real-world data. In 1986, a few years after earning his doctorate, Sugihara moved to Scripps to get his hand on plankton data that a researcher there had collected in the 1920s and 30s. It's an amazing data set, Sugihara said. 
I knew there was some way to get good information out of it. Based on the plankton data, as well as work on measles and chickenpox cases by other researchers, Sugihara and May published a paper in Nature in 1990, showing how Talkin's theorem could help make short-term predictions of some nonlinear systems. The essence of the method involves identifying points in a system's attractor graph that are close to the point representing the system's present state. For one or two time steps, one can then predict that the system will evolve similarly to how it did in the past. The paper has since been cited more than 1,000 times by scientists all over the disciplinary map. The paper also prompted Sugihara to make a mid-career foray into finance, as firms were very interested in forecasting stock prices using methods similar to those he had applied in ecology. In 2002, Sugihara returned to science. He had unfinished business, convincing the world that ecosystems, though complex and chaotic, could be predicted, and that managers could use those predictions to do their jobs better. I feel like I have a mission, he said, to get people to understand how this all works, to begin to embrace natural systems as they are, as opposed to as we hope they would be. Ecological modeling began almost 100 years ago, and from the start, it was influenced heavily by physics and engineering, which had used differential equations to describe dynamic systems for the previous 200 years. The most commonly used fishery model, for example, is the Ricker model, developed by the Canadian biologist William Ricker in the 1950s to predict the number of new adults that an existing generation of fish is likely to produce the following year. Ricker's original equation included just two parameters, the reproductive rate of a given fish and the number of fish the environment can sustain, known as the carrying capacity. Fishery managers still rely heavily on the Ricker model, along with variants that include factors like temperature, to estimate a maximum sustainable yield that fishers can take without causing fish stocks to crash. Such estimates are naive, Sugihara said, because they assume fish population is correlated to environmental factors in simple and static ways. It really is almost a kind of hubris to write down an equation that guesses that temperature ought to enter in a specific way. Environmental factors, the climate, ocean circulation, human impacts, are always changing, but parameterized models such as these are stuck in time and cannot adapt to those changes, much less incorporate them to become more accurate. They will not necessarily improve as we get more data, Sugihara said. Empirical dynamic modeling, by contrast, seamlessly incorporates new data and is always improving. Talkin's theorem works best when there are enough data points to make a dense attractor, making it easier to find times when a system's present state is close to a past one. Any new data points will help users to see where a system is going to go next. It's allowing the data to say what the relationships are, Sugihara said. And it succeeds, he said, where the rubber hits the road. Namely, on how well it can predict the future, and not just on how well scientists can make a curve fit the data after the fact. Sugihara's work is not armchair mathematics. Many fishery scientists want better forecasts, and researchers from both NOAA and Canada's equivalent agency, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, or DFO, have co-authored papers with Sugihara and his students. But so far, no fishery commission has actually incorporated the methods into its management practices. One hang-up, said John Schnute, a retired analyst formerly at DFO, 
is that so far, only Sugihara and his colleagues have had access to the underlying algorithms, meaning that fishery biologists must send their data to Scripps and then wait for a forecast. By contrast, all fishery biologists can use software implementing the Ricker model. Empirical dynamic modeling hasn't reached that point of maturity, Schnut said. That is changing. Sugihara's software is now available for researchers to use, and his students are leading workshops to teach them how to do so. DeAngelis, a lifelong user of parameterized equations, said he hopes to use Sugihara's methods in his own work, predicting the population dynamics in fish populations in the Everglades. DeAngelis also goes further, writing in a comment accompanying Sugihara's team's 2015 PNAS paper that empirical dynamic modeling may be part of a broader shift away from the dominance that equations have long exerted over science. Many commentators, including DeAngelis, noted that equations have not yet yielded the same success in ecology that they have in the physical sciences, suggesting a new approach is needed. Sugihara agrees. Static equilibrium equations may be useful for building a bridge, he said, but it's time to abandon the search for equilibrium in the complex, nonlinear systems that nature produces. Seductively simple correlations may appear for a period of time, he observed, but in a chaotic system, such correlations do not provide true insight. It is not the world that is mysterious, he said. Rather, it is the way we view it that makes it mysterious. Fellow ecologists are excited by the new method, but mindful of the challenges Sugihara faces. Positive data remains one of the big ones. While fields like medicine and neuroscience are now spewing out huge datasets more quickly than scientists can process them, ecology is still stumbling towards its big data revolution. A more difficult question, Sauer said, may be that of stationarity. Whether the meaning of a measurement stays the same from one day, or year, or decade to the next. Stationarity is one of the hallmarks of laboratory science. A protein molecule or yeast cell today is the same sort of thing that it was 100 years ago. But it is less clear whether a tally of Fraser River sockeye salmon in 2015 has the same meaning as a count of the same salmon in 1950. The DFO changed how it defines salmon stocks during that time period, and even the fish themselves may have evolved. DeAngelis adds that empirical dynamic modeling has another limitation. The method can make only short-term predictions. This goes back to the fundamental problem with chaotic systems. Two systems, whose initial conditions vary only the tiniest bit, will diverge over time onto totally different trajectories. In practical terms, this means that even if the method does a good job of forecasting next year's salmon population, it can't say much about that population several years from now. For these reasons and others, Sugihara is starting to push his methods beyond ecology. A few years ago, Sugihara got an email from Gerald Pau, a molecular biologist in the lab of Inder Verma at the Salk Institute for Biological Studies in San Diego, just on the road from Scripps. Pau was convinced that Sugihara's methods could be used to interpret gene expression data. Sugihara was skeptical, but once he realized how rich Pau's data were, with coordinated time series based on hourly measures of the expression of all 25,000 or so genes in human chromosomes, he realized he was wrong. Sugihara 
Pau, and Verma got started on yeast and mouse models and hope to publish a paper soon that will show how networks of genes can be casually linked, even when their expression patterns aren't correlated. Ideas similar to empirical dynamic modeling are also showing up in neuroscience. Neuroscientists would love to be able to predict the onset of crippling conditions, like epileptic seizures, and some are modeling firing patterns of neuron networks using Tolkien's theorem. Sauer said neuroscientists may be further along than ecologists in bringing the theorem from the realm of theory into practice. But, he said, the real killer app is not here yet. Sugihara agrees with this assessment. Tolkien's theorem is an amazing thing, he said, and the potential applications remarkably have not been fully realized. He added, I think that's just beginning to change now. I think we're beginning to overcome the activation energy barrier that it takes to understand this stuff. Second, Networks Untangle Malaria's Deadly Shuffle by Veronique Greenwood. Think of a deck of cards, said Dan Larimore. Now, take a pair of scissors and chop the 52 cards into chunks. Throw them in the air. Card confetti rains down, so the pieces are nowhere near where they started. Now, tape them into 52 new cards, each one a mosaic of the original cards. After 48 hours, repeat. You have just reenacted the process that Plasmodium falciparum uses to avoid the immune system. P. falciparum is the world's most dangerous malaria parasite, causing 600,000 deaths every year and killing more children under the age of five than any other infectious disease on the planet. Larimore, an applied mathematician, was introduced to its promiscuous habits while doing postdoctoral research at what is now the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Each card represents a gene for a protein that attaches to the walls of the host's blood vessels, anchoring the parasite so that it cannot be dragged into the spleen, where it would be detected and destroyed. Each falciparum parasite has 50 to 60 of these VAR genes, as they are called, and as time passes, the parasite uses first one, then another, presenting a constantly morphing face to immune cells that might spot it clinging to the blood vessel. The crowning glory of this tactic, though, is that when the parasite divides, which it does every couple of days, chunks and snippets of the genes swap places up and down the chromosomes. In one out of every 500 parasites, this process will generate an entirely new gene. With the number of parasites out there, that adds up pretty quickly. It's crazy. It means the total number of VAR gene sequences in the world is millions and millions. Virtually infinite, said Antoine Clasance, a malaria researcher with the Medical Research Council, the Gambia unit, in Fahara. New evidence from Larimore and his collaborators, however, reveals a paradoxical stability in these genes. In a paper in Nature Communications, they show that while VAR genes themselves are never repeated, short sequences of DNA in them, pieces of cut-up card, are shared between species that have been separate for millions of years. 
It's a finding that has made some malaria researchers feel hopeful, because it suggests that there are limits on the crazy remaking of the VAR genes, which could mean that vaccines can be developed to fight them. We want to know basic stuff, said Carolyn Bucky, an epidemiologist at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and a co-author of the new study. Are there certain parasites that cause disease more than others? Are they evolutionarily related to each other? These questions, which in most pathogens we can figure out how to answer, have no answer in malaria, because we don't know how to compare these genes to each other. The usual tool for such a task is a phylogenetic tree. At the tree's base is the oldest version of a gene, and as its daughters accrue small differences, a single DNA base change here, a single base change there, they become separate branches. Trees are built by lining the genes up next to each other and checking for differences at each DNA base. The trees have been helpful in studying the divergence of genes in viruses like the flu, which changes via just such a process of mutation. Malaria researchers have used them as well, but with mixed results. A pair of VAR genes might have a chunk of 30 DNA bases in common, but if that chunk is at the beginning of one gene and at the end of another, which happens all the time in the shuffling process, a tree will call it a difference instead of a commonality. If the chunk does happen to be in the same place in both genes, a tree will say that the genes recently diverged, but the chunk could just as well have arrived two days ago in one gene and a year ago in another. All of this means that trees built from VAR genes are, at best, difficult to interpret, and at worst, misleading, implying relationships where none exist. It's a mush. That's the technical term, joked Martine Zilversmith, a malaria researcher at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. If you want to compare these genes, though, there aren't many other options. It was a case of, this is the tool we have, and everyone kind of jamming their data into the tool, said Bucky, who first began to talk about an alternative approach with collaborator Aaron Closet, now a professor of computer science at the University of Colorado Boulder, when the two were postdocs. In 2012, Larimer, now at the Santa Fe Institute in New Mexico, took a postdoc position with Bucky and Closet to try and see whether network analysis, a field he knew well, could help provide an alternative way to track the history of malaria parasites. Network analysis involves drawing links between nodes that have something in common, generating a diagram that can reveal underlying patterns. Linked nodes might be people who are friends in a social network, diseases that afflict the same people, or genes that share chunks of sequence. If you make a network in which VAR genes are only connected if they share chunks of a certain length, the commonalities leap out. Bucky, Larimore, and Closet published a paper in 2013 showing that such networks could pick out identical sequences shared by P. falciparum parasites from different continents. Being able to clearly see these relationships helps researchers in their efforts to figure out how and why they arose. A greater number of common chunks in a pair of genes could mean that they share a recent ancestor, or it could indicate that the proteins they produced have a similar way of interacting with the immune system. The chunks could also be evidence of an ancestral cache of cut-up card pieces that modern parasites still carry around. To investigate whether VAR genes exist in other parasite species and, if they do, whether they share any chunks with P. falciparum, 
the researchers analyzed samples of malaria parasites from wild apes. They used parasites from feces collected in the jungle and from the blood of sanctuary chimps, assembling DNA sequences from five plasmodium species that infect gorillas and chimps, including one that had already been found to have VAR genes. They were in luck. The VAR gene marker they searched for cropped up in at least three of the species. That in itself is interesting, because it means the VAR gene family is old, ancient even, according to Thomas Laftson, a biologist at the University of Copenhagen in Denmark who studies the genes but was not involved in the research. When the team created their networks, they saw something else striking. The VAR genes shared chunks of their most variable regions with each other, despite the millions of years of evolution, millions of years of slicing and dicing, that separated them. The chimp parasite, P. reichenaui in particular, had so many connections to P. falciparum that in many places in the VAR genes, they are indistinguishable. In other words, Klasson said, if I give you a VAR gene marker, you cannot tell me if it comes from reichenaui or falciparum. This is important because it means that, for millions of years, the VAR genes have been preserving the genetic variety produced by their snipathon, rather than just chopping themselves up indiscriminately. There's a good reason for them to do that, it turns out. As soon as the immune system starts to recognize one bit of a VAR gene, the parasite trots out newer versions. But after a while, the old bit will be rare enough that the immune system no longer recognizes it. And if it has been stashed away, rather than destroyed, the parasite can bring it back out again. Basically, this discovery shows that these old chunks are not allowed to sink into evolutionary obscurity, Zilversmith said. The preserved pieces are also a sign that the gene's diversity has limits, Laftson suggested. If the VAR protein changes too much, it can no longer cling to blood vessels. The fact that these chunks have stuck around all these years shows that they are part of the select range of structural options within which the protein still works. The new research sketches the borders of an evolutionary space beyond which VAR genes cannot venture without losing their function. This has implications about how scared we should be about sequence diversity, as researchers work on developing vaccines, Laftson said. As any malaria vaccine researcher will tell you, finding a method to that particular madness would be welcome. There have been hardcore malaria vaccine projects going on for 40, 45 years, Zilversmith said, and it's been really slow going. Vaccines expose the immune system to a fragment of a pathogen protein that remains the same from infection to infection, so that the immune system will attack when it next encounters the protein. With most viruses, it's a reasonable approach. With malaria, it's a nearly impossible one. Even the shared sequences revealed in the recent paper are not repeated frequently enough to be useful targets for vaccines, Laftson said. We're trying to unscrew this Phillips-head screw with a flathead screwdriver. It's just not the right tool, Silversmith said. Somehow, many people in malaria-endemic countries acquire natural immunity to the disease by adolescence. Researchers even know that their immune systems do it by recognizing the VAR gene proteins. The difficulty is in figuring out how to do it artificially. Laftson thinks that the overall shape of the protein, which is likely less changeable than the genes that produce it, may be what the immune system is recognizing in conferring natural immunity. 
This could be a better vaccine target than any particular sequence, he said. To adapt the deck of cards analogy, priming the immune system to recognize the rectangular shape of a card rather than the patterns on its face may have potential. Peter Bull, a malaria researcher at Cambridge, adds that one of the things he finds most remarkable about the research is the perspective it gives on the history of the VAR family of genes in the great apes. This is a nice illustration of how this gene family has been around in the primate population for a very, very long time, he said. It fits with the idea of all these new human-like species that have been identified in the fossil record. There may have been a lot more primates very similar to us at a certain point. Perhaps they all had this kind of parasite. The growing realization that VAR genes are not limited to P. falciparum has prompted researchers to reevaluate the gene's gruesome powers. The dogma has long been that VAR genes are the harbingers of serious illness. Other human parasites that cause malaria, like P. vivax, do not have the genes and also provoke less severe disease. Falciparum was unique, Silversmith said. This was the mythology we built around it. But when it became clear, some years ago, that a chimp parasite had VAR genes, researchers began to question whether they had the right idea. And the new research reinforces the idea that the story may be more complicated than just the presence or absence of these genes. One of falciparum's worst tendencies is to latch onto the small blood vessels of the brain with VAR gene proteins. It sends sufferers, mostly children and pregnant women, into comas from which they do not wake. From the limited amount researchers know about malaria and other great apes, it isn't clear that this cerebral malaria occurs in apes infected with VAR gene-bearing parasites, even though the genes appear to produce the same kind of protein. It changes the kind of question you need to ask, Zilversmith said. Is there something about falciparum's VAR genes in particular that makes them bad? Maybe it has to do more with the humans themselves. Maybe it has everything to do with the host and not with the parasite. In truth, it's probably a little bit of both of those things. But we're going to have to look more closely to find out. Laramore and Bucky hope to use their knowledge of networks to answer other questions about the genes. How might exposure to malaria parasites, when a person is young, affect immune response to those VAR genes, for instance? By building networks in which the nodes could be anything from patients to VAR genes, it may be possible for researchers to observe revealing patterns. That work is still embryonic. We are still working on assuring ourselves that we should believe the signal that we would get out, Larimore said. But he is looking forward to seeing where it takes them. I do think this is another opportunity for networks to deliver. You're listening to Quantum Magazine's Science Podcast with music by Poddington Bear. I'm Leah Alfonso. For news, interviews, graphics, and more, visit quantummagazine.org.